Welcome to Logos Live. My name is Andrew Laird. I'm from the City Bible Forum here in Melbourne, and I'm your host for today's show. Now, Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live engages the Christian message before a live audience in the CBD of Melbourne. And do we have a live audience here today? (laughs) We also aim to have a little bit of fun. Who said exploring the big questions of life shouldn't be enjoyable? In this series of Logos Live, Encounters with Jesus, we're exploring how the central events and meetings in Jesus' life can change our own lives forever. Now, you may be asking at this point, where is your usual host, Robert Martin? Well, today the tables have turned. Instead of being interviewer, today's guest on Logos Live is Robert Martin. That's right, sitting beside me is your usual host. I'm going to be interviewing him. Uh, You might say the hunter has become the hunted. Um, As I said, Rob is the regular host of Logos Live. He directs the work of City Bible Forum here in Melbourne, uh, which means he's also my boss. He regularly speaks, he writes and he blogs about the big questions of life. Would you please welcome Robert Martin? So, Rob, what's it like being interviewed and introduced onto your own program? Well, I'm just glad everyone clapped. I'm very pleased that, well, not everyone actually, but um, most people clapped. And just very quickly, how am I going so far, boss? Uh, make sure you don't do too well. Okay. okay. Yeah, we just, I'd like my job back, if that's all right. Yeah. Well, today on Logos Live, we're considering a fairly heavy topic, actually. It's an encounter with Jesus at a graveside. Uh, but we do try to have a bit of fun on the show. So, to begin, we're going to have a quick quiz, Rob, just to test how much you know about what Australians think about death. Question one in our quiz. What percentage of Australians who die have written a will? Option A, 100%. We've all got one ready, written, ready to go. B, 65%. C, 55%. Or D, 33%. Only one in three Australians has a will. Part of me wants to go for the 33% because it just sounds like it's the lowest, but just to make it interesting, I'm going to go C, 55%. Well, you're correct. All right. <laughs> it is C, 55% of Australians, so just a little over half yep. will, Australians will die with a, with a will written and ready to go. Okay. Question number two. In a recent survey, what percentage of Australians who were surveyed said they wanted to talk more about death? Was it A, 60%? So more than half of those Australians surveyed said they wanted to talk more about death. Was it B, 30%? Was it C, 5%? Or was it D, 0%? No one wants to talk about death any more than we already do. Well, I think I'm going to get surprised by the answer to this. But my experience is that we generally don't like talking about death. It's one of those lead balloon kind of conversations that you have where... Death and taxes. Well, that's right. You just go to a party or, you know, you're going to a wedding and, hey, let's just talk about death. It's just not really something that you want to talk about. Uh, So I'm going to go with C again with 5%, knowing that it's probably wrong. Well, you're right in that it is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The correct answer was actually A. Wow. 60% of those Australians who were surveyed said they wished that we talked about death more in Australia, which is a fascinating result, I think. So why do you think that is? Hey, I'm doing the interview. Sorry, Sorry, I'm getting too used to asking the questions. So in our quiz, you've got uh, one out of two. So you've passed. I have passed. So why don't you give a big round of applause? Thank you, yes. So Rob, in that survey... 60% of Australians said they wanted to talk about death more, which might suggest that we don't talk about it very much, which Mm. you just said a moment ago. Why do you think we avoid talking about death? 
I, don't, I think there's a, probably a couple of reasons. It's, it's an unpleasant topic because death is the end in many ways, particularly in our secular culture, which rejects sort of any idea of an afterlife or anything going beyond death. So death really is the end. That's why we have things like bucket lists because they're the sort of things we want to knock off before we hit the bucket. Mm. We, in some ways, there's a, a sense it's there, but we really just, I just don't think we do want to talk about it much. I'm surprised people want to talk about it more. It really does genuinely surprise me. But I wonder if we're not strong enough or we have enough courage to face that conversation because given our secular paradigm that we live in, that death is the end and it's, I think it's an awful prospect that we just we want to suppress that. We just don't want to talk about it because it becomes uncomfortable. You mentioned that for, for many people, they think death is the end. There's nothing yeah. more after that. And, and as I mentioned a moment ago, you interact with a number of atheists in dialogues and, and blog yep. posts and blog articles and things like that. And a number of those atheists do say for them, that's the end. There's nothing more after that. What do you make of that perspective, that view? Well, if they're correct, and they may be, if atheism is correct, then I can't see any alternative that death really is the end. That we are matter and energy, that's all we are, and that will just cease to have any sort of animation and we just become stardust, whereas that's what they say that we've come from. We are the result of stars exploding and we just go back to that dust. But if that's your view, what does that make of life now? It affects it in a couple of ways, I think. I think one is that I think it devalues life now in that it means that if that's all we are, we'll be, we become, we just become like the stars, then so what if I achieve lots of great things or have lots of great relationships or do whatever I do in this life? Because if it, all I'm going to become is just dust, then so what? Hmm. I guess another, another response to death is to shake your fist at death. And there's a poem by Dylan Thomas that mm-hmm. I think really captures that well. Some of you might be familiar with that line of the poem where Thomas writes, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Do you think that death for some people is something that is raged against at all costs? I think so. But this is, raises an enigmatic point. or It's an enigma. Because if, if the atheist is right and that we are just going to go back and be dust as we were before we were born, then I can't see why we should rage against it. It's just we've just got to accept it. And I think that leads you to despair because it just means, well, life is good and then it ends and that's kind of it. There's nothing really to rage against because, well, that's just how life is. But I think, though, that we do rage against death thinking that there is something wrong. Something is so good. Life is so good. And that for it to be taken away or to be lost means that we actually have lost something of real value. So I'm not going to go quietly into it, is perhaps the... No, no, because I think that we realise that this is worth fighting for. We celebrate, rightly, people who survive cancer or survive illness and say that they're survivors. But I think if we overlay that with the atheist paradigm, then we just got to resign ourselves, well, that's just how it is. Uh, There's nothing to rage against, just get over it and grow up. Now, Rob, for you, death has been a very painful intrusion in your life in very recent times. Do you think you might be able to share with us just a little bit now about what your experience with death has been in recent times? About 12 months ago or so, it was five o'clock in the morning, and usually at that time of day, I'm I'm asleep. And so I was asleep this morning, and there was a phone call that came through. And I always get worried when there's a phone call in the middle of the night. Uh, My experience in the past has been when there's a phone call in the middle of the night, someone's died. My parents were on holidays overseas. They were in Europe having a terrific time. And I wasn't really sure what had happened to the phone call. The phone rang, we answered it, and uh, my sister was on the phone and said that my mum had died suddenly in an airport in Helsinki. Uh, completely unexpectedly, they'd been on, they were on holiday, so that she was, didn't have any pre-existing condition. 
and she'd had a, an infection which had gone to her chest. She died of a double pulmonary embolism. She just walked off the plane and then basically couldn't walk anymore in the airport in Helsinki and died. And my life well, just kind of changed at that moment. So it was a, a real intrusion, not just intrusion in my personal life, but I mean, it changed everything that I... I mean, I was going to go to a conference that day. I just, I just couldn't go to that. Took five weeks off and tried to wrestle with it and deal with it, but... Yeah, death was a real intrusion. How old was she? She was 63. And I think there's people in this room who are a similar age. It was completely unexpected. 63 on holidays on the other side of the world. That's right, yeah. A day like that would be seared in your mind. What, mm-hmm. what do you remember of that day? Oh, well, I remember crying quite a lot at different times. It, just, it was a weird day because it was a beautiful spring day in Melbourne. Beautiful, sunny and at one level, nothing had changed. I still had my family with me. I was still at the same house that I was living in. But at the same time, everything had changed. I felt like a part of me had been ripped apart or had been taken away. And I remember my eldest son, who was uh, seven years old at the time, he was the favourite of my mum. And he bounded out that day. He'd found a little book that he had which made a solar-powered oven. And so he just built his little solar-powered oven and he just came out. He wanted, took it outside because he wanted to make it work. Mm. And I just burst into tears because my mum adored him and here he was just exploring science, exploring the world, and she would just not see him grow up anymore. And it was just this terrible moment of loss, along with the other moments of grief and just trying to work out my poor dad then had to work out what he was going to do with his life and his life has obviously completely changed mm. and that was because of death. Mm. I mentioned a moment ago that Dylan Thomas poem of raging against death and that sort of I guess fighting against the idea of it. Is there a sense in which you've perhaps in your mind fought against the idea that this has come and entered your life in this way or even even a sense of anger at what had happened? I don't think I've felt so much anger. I have a, a a number of different emotions that I feel and I've gone through. One of them has been despair. Because if the atheist paradigm, the atheist secularist view of the world is true, then my mum just has ceased to be. And I think it has, more than anything else, has confronted me with my own mortality, realising that there'll be one morning when I won't wake up. My eyes will remain shut. Mm. And that's the case for all of us. And it's really... Uh, shaken and challenged my view on our own mortality and that there will be a day when we won't actually wake up. Mm. I want to come back to your mother's death uh, in a moment's time, but we're thinking today about encounters with Jesus. And there's one famous occasion where uh, Jesus encounters death, and it's recorded for us uh, in the Gospel of John, the story of uh, John records Jesus' life in John 11, and it's our logos for the day. And in this passage, Jesus is at the tomb of a dear friend of his, of Lazarus. Mm. Can you set the scene for us a little bit? What's happening here? Well, as you've said, there's friends of Jesus. Uh, He has has three who are dear friends, brothers and sisters. So there's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, before the little section that we have here we're looking at today, Jesus is aware that Lazarus is about to die. And he actually delays his trip. Which is, which is a bit puzzling. He, when he finally arrives, he's, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, it says there in verse 17. And I think the significance of that is that three days, in the, I think in the ancient Jewish understanding of the world, is the time when they recognised that someone had really died. That was the time that the, for the spirit to depart from the body. Basically, so Jesus has delayed his trip, he's come, Lazarus is dead, he's confronted a house of mourning. 
And that's where he's entering into this, this story. And that's where the encounter begins. So there's these two sisters, Mary and Martha, yep. obviously grieving at the death of their brother. Yep. Now, they, they ask virtually the same question of Jesus in verses 21 and, and 32 there. Yep. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But you get two very different responses from Jesus. What, how does he respond? And, and why do you think he responds so differently to the two of them? Well, I think he's reflect, reflecting their characters in many ways. Martha was a very practical person, a doer. She wants to know what's right and wants to do what's right. And so Jesus responds there with the practical, what happens after we die, questions. And so you notice there, he says in verse 22, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, oh, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. She's, she's talking about a standard Jewish understanding of resurrection at that time, of the resurrection at the end of times, and that's where the, the great resurrection will happen. So Jesus responds there more in a practical sense. But then when Mary she's probably a little bit more emotional, and then Jesus just weeps with her. Hmm. And I think, in many ways, this demonstrates two aspects of Jesus' character. How so? Well, I think one of them talks more about his divinity. He did say that he, well, he talks about who Jesus claims he is in verse 25, which is a crucial one, which I think we'll come to in a second, hmm. which is where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. So he's there making an astonishing statement mm. about his identity and what he's come to do. That only makes sense, I think, that statement only makes sense if Jesus really is divine, mm. if he's God himself. Otherwise, he becomes a, a, a lunatic or a, cra- or a liar. And then when he responds to Mary, we can see there uh, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. And then the shortest verse in the Bible is John 11.35, which says, Jesus wept. Mm. And I think, again, that's in contrast to the understanding that divine figures had no emotions or displayed Mm. no emotions. But here Jesus is doing a very human thing. The same way that I reacted to my mum's death, Mm. Jesus Mm. reacts to his friend's death here. And also, I think he sees the the pain and the the loss that Mary feels, and he empathises with her at that point, and he cries. And I think it reveals something not just about uh, his character as he's this great messiah or this great divine figure, but he's a very real person who empathizes and understands even in our weakness Mm. and our suffering. You see also in this passage, Jesus responds to death as well in a a couple of different ways. In verse 33 and verse 38 there, it speaks of anger in the face of death. What do you make of that? As you mentioned before, I think he's pushing the idea that death is an intrusion, that this is not right. He doesn't just accept it like the the secularist says, well, it's just a natural part of life, just get over it. He's actually saying, no, this is wrong. Death is an intrusion, it's wrong. Life is so good that death is robbing us of something really great. And he's robbing us of a friend and death has power, which he is angry at. It's almost this raging, kind of like Dylan Thomas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you get this this sympathising, this empathising with uh, one of the sisters. He weeps with her. He grieves, but there's also that extraordinary claim. Yep. Unpack that for us a little bit. What is the claim that Jesus is making there? This is one in verse twenty-five. Verse twenty-five. Jesus says, "I am the resurrection and the life." But it's extraordinary because, unlike other figures, I mean, if I was to make that claim, I, I think that everyone would would laugh. Because uh, people are, yeah, that's right. People are trying to laugh at the front here. If I said, I am the resurrection and the life. Because like, notice he doesn't say, I bring the resurrection. He actually claims to be it himself. 
And I think that if the person making this claim is not someone who's able to actually deliver on that claim, then you kind of think they're a bit of a lunatic or a bit, a bit crazy or just wacky. But he actually makes this claim, and he's actually serious. He says, I am the resurrection in life. And he, look, at, he says, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. I mean, who makes those kind of claims? So it's an astonishing claim. But it's also, he's claiming to do what God alone can do, hmm. which is to bring life. And for him to be claimed to be the life and to offer hope amidst death is a crazy thing if he was not telling the truth. I was going to say, it's a remarkable claim. And you've shared with me before that it was a claim that really struck you in the face of your mother's death. Absolutely. Share that with us. Particularly in the interment where we had the ashes and we were putting them in the ground. And at that moment, you realize the destiny of all mortal people is that my mum, who I'd been speaking to only and sending messages to and text messages to only a few weeks before, was now in a little container of ashes. Mm. And we put them in the ground. And as a Christian service, my mother was a Christian believer. And it's, it's still sad, even though she's a, a Christian. But I remember the internment service that we had. And it really deeply affected me when I read this. This was, this was read out. This, this little passage was read out at the service where we put the ashes into the ground. And... We said that though our bodies, I'm paraphrasing the service, but it basically says though our bodies die, we have hope that we'll be raised again to life with Jesus. And we read the words from John eleven twenty five: I am the resurrection and the life. And I thought, how dare Jesus say this? Or how dare someone write this hmm. or make it up if it's not true? What an awful, awful hoax. It's the, it has to be the cruelest, cruelest thing to say. In the midst of suffering, midst of death, it's like saying... There, there. It's going to be okay. Even though I know it's not going to be okay, I'll just make it up and say it's going to be okay. Hmm. I just think whoever wrote that, if it's not true, it is the worst, utter worst hoax. I wish it had never been written if it was not actually true. Hmm. But some people say that oh, you want Christianity to be true because it gives you hope and consolation. Well, I don't want it consolation unless it's actually true. Hmm. It's not actually consolation. That's false consolation. There's no hope at all there. It has to be true for it to actually offer any hope or consolation. So I really reflected on that and thought, if Jesus didn't say that, if it wasn't true, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Hmm. But the hope comes is because I actually think there's good reason to believe that it is true. And so what did you conclude in that moment? Is it, did you conclude it's the words of a hoaxer, or did you conclude that this is real and true hope? I think if you read the words of Jesus, I think it's very hard to believe that it was a hoax. As a, someone who encourages us to be honest and to not lie... For then to come and write something that is known to be a lie just doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense. But it made me realise that this promise is an amazing promise. It's a promise that seems to defy logic, expectation, because my mum's ashes are in the ground. Here Jesus is promising that anyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever, that we will be raised to life again. How that's going to happen? I don't know. I have to hold on to Jesus and his promise and his trustworthiness because if we look at the way the world is, it just looks like there's ashes in the ground and that's where they'll stay. But if we have a promise of somebody who's trustworthy who can say that actually those ashes will be brought to life into the glorious resurrection at the end of time, then I think that's worth holding on to. So these are your reflections at graveside, so to speak. Let let me just share with you the story of another person at a graveside. Mm. This is an atheist woman who recorded these words after burying a loved one. She wrote, In my adult life, I believed in God for about 30 seconds when they buried my son. There was an incredibly vivid sense of this departing spirit going away. Then I came to my senses. Mm. This is one woman at a graveside. 
in that same situation, you concluded something very, very different. So why are you so convinced that Jesus' words aren't hoax, but they're real hope? A number of reasons. I think we have good historical reason to believe that Jesus not only existed, but that what we have before us is trustworthy. And I think one of the the things that really strike me and makes me think why this is true is because this comes in a Jewish context. The Jews were firm monotheists. They believed that God is one and God is alone. And so for someone, a man, to come to earth and say, I am the resurrection of the life, unless he was actually saying, unless they actually believed he was true, then it makes no sense within the Jewish context. How did monotheistic Jews, people who believed in one God, come up with Jesus being God? I think it's only because they realized that he really was God himself, come to earth and to offer true life and true hope. Is there a sense then if, if we're to know who God is, we're only able to know him if he comes and reveals himself? I think that's the best way of knowing God, who not God is. People get a sense that God is there. Like I remember in high school, I went to this personal development day. They were trying to encourage us to study hard and do well. And the guest speaker, there's only a handful of people in my school went to church. And the guy asked a question to the group, says, hands up here, hand up if you believe in God. And I was stunned because about 70% of my classmates put their hands up. And I thought, Really? Like, I wouldn't have expected this many people. I thought there would have been three or four of us at most, but most of the people, well, majority put their hands up, which I think indicates that a lot of us feel that there's something out there. Uh, and I encounter, as I said, a lot of atheists who say, well, I don't, prove to me God's here, prove to me God's there. But I think the best way to actually know that God is there and is real is if he, as he said, reveals himself or speaks and comes and visits us. And I think that's in Jesus what we have. Also, for most people, this idea of God is just out there, is just kind of anemic. There's something out there, but it doesn't actually affect my life. It doesn't change anything. But I think encountering Jesus is actually encountering God himself. Because when we encounter Jesus, we actually encounter the one who made the world and flung stars into space. And so that's why reading something like this is so crucial and so important. Because we actually not only get a sense that there's something out there, but that something out there has come. And it's come, something out there has come and spoken to us, and there's something out there has offered us life and hope. I think it's C.S. Lewis who gives the illustration of how would Macbeth, a character of Shakespeare, know that Shakespeare existed, the author of the play? Yes, he'd only know it if, he, if Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. Exactly right. And that's exactly what we say has happened, is that the creator of our universe, we could go out to space, we could go into space and see... He's got there. In fact, the Russians tried to do that. They went into space trying to see if, well, God's not there, so he's not, he doesn't exist. But maybe you're just looking in the wrong place. And in fact, you could look everywhere in the world. Unless God writes himself into the story of our world, mm-hmm. there's no way we, we can really be for cert- know for certain that he's there and also that he wants a relationship with us. It's certainly the claim of Jesus that, you know, that he is God in the flesh. He's God writing himself into the story so that God reveals himself to us. Yep. Uh, some might still object and say, well, he's just lying yep. or he's just a lunatic, he's mad. Yeah. Uh, what would you make of those objections? Well, I think they're the only real two alternatives we have. We've got three alternatives to understand who Jesus is. Because he, he claims to be God. There's no question here. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, that is a claim that he is the one who brings life and God alone brings life. He's, he's saying, I am the big guy. Mm. The big guy is here and that's who I'm claiming to be. There's three options. Either he's telling lies, telling porky pies, and he knows it, which makes him a liar, or he's telling lies, he's not telling the truth, and he doesn't know it, which makes him just crazy. I think they're both possible. But as I said before, that for someone who says that honesty is a virtue, that we should be honest and tell the truth, 
to that same person, the whole nature of his identity to be built on a lie just doesn't seem to make sense. And then for him to be a lunatic, I mean, lunatics gather little bands of people together for a period of time and convince them that they're God Almighty, but to convince first century monotheistic Jews that he was God himself, uh, as I said, he becomes the greatest hoaxer of all time, or he really was telling the truth. But it's not just a claim that happens in this passage, is it? I mean, how does it end? Well, exactly right. And as we get to the very end of the passage, where it's all well and good to make a claim. Mm. It's all well and good to say, I can say, hey, I'm the resurrection of the life. The first question I imagine that you're going to ask to me is, okay, prove it. How do you demonstrate it? And I think Jesus demonstrates that he is the resurrection and the life by raising a dead man back to life. We see this at the end, that he shouts. It's really interesting that he shouts with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, if I did that to my mum, mum, wake up. I'm not 100% certain mm. that it's not going to happen. I cannot do that. You cannot do that. I'm pretty sure that nobody else here can do that. I think that the person who claims to be the resurrection of the life, the way that they demonstrate that claim is if they can actually raise someone from the life, then, then that person's worth listening to. So you're convinced of who Jesus is. Uh, he is who he says he is and that he offers real hope in the face of death. Do you still fear death, though? As um, Oscar Wilde says, it's not that I don't fear death, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so in some ways, it's walking out into the unknown. When we're going into the unknown, the only way that we can be comfortable in the dark or where we're going in the, is if we have someone with us who we can trust and someone who brings light. So well, yes, I do fear death. There is an element of the unknown and it's part of my, the influence. I think of our modern secularist culture that says that death is the end. I can't feel in some ways concerned by that. But that's why when I read this, it is balm for my soul. It is life and light to my heart to say that Jesus is the resurrection and the life mm. and he actually brings hope. And that's real hope. And it's not hope based on just wishful thinking. There's good reasons to believe it. So I grasp that and hold that with everything that I have because he is the only hope that we have. There is no other hope. That's why I'm, a, I'm just astonished at times when some people are so cavalier towards the Christian faith and say, I actually don't want this to be true. I think we should want this to be true. It may not be true, but we should want it to be true because it offers us hope for our greatest enemy, which is death. So, Rob, encountering God himself, how does an encounter with Jesus at a graveside provide an answer to one of life's biggest, if not biggest, question, death? Well, it provides hope. It means that death is not the end. When I look at that little container of ashes and realise that that is not the end, I'm not just going to be go back into stardust, I'm not just going to rot in the world, not just food for animals, but we can have the greatest gift of all, which is life, and life to the full and life with Jesus, and life with God, through the one who said that he is the resurrection and the life. Let me leave you with the Logos of the day from John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live. Please thank our guest today, Robert Martin.